Jonathan Geyer, you were the first person I thought of when I heard that Henry Kissinger died. Is that a compliment, Sean? <laughs> I don't know if it's a compliment. I mean, you spend an inordinate amount of time for a reporter in 2023 thinking and writing about Henry Kissinger. What is that, like a like a fixation? It might look like that from the outside. I have, you know, seen him speak or attend events with him three, four, five times the last six months. But it turns out the world is fixated with Henry Kissinger. He's been celebrated by Biden's cabinet. Xi Jinping threw a four-hour banquet for him. In September, Kissinger met with Zelensky. He met with Netanyahu. Basically, I'm trying to understand why is Washington, Wall Street, so many world leaders fixated with Henry Kissinger, a man who was 100 years old. That's coming up on Today Explained. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, it's Noelle. Before the show starts, I want to invite you to take a survey that we're running right now. If you have a few minutes, we would appreciate you going to vox.com slash podcast survey and telling us what you think. Vox.com slash podcast survey. There's also a link in the show notes. This will really help the show out. So thank you. Today Explained, Sean Ramos from here with Jonathan Geyer, senior foreign policy writer at Vox. Jonathan, how does Henry Kissinger become Henry Kissinger? First of all, there's so much depth to this man's story. I, I think he's so tied up with a, a legacy of Vietnam and war, but we really have to start a lot earlier. Born in, you know, 100 years ago, 1923, born in Germany, comes to America as an immigrant. Uh, it's sort of an amazing Jewish immigrant story goes back to fight in World War II, you know, is an intelligence officer, has some role in, in liberating the camps and sort of is on the front lines of American power, so to speak, from the very earliest moments of his career. And what does he do when he gets back to the United States? So he, you know, it's 1957. He's got those signature plastic glasses that he becomes, you know, kind of known for his whole life young Jewish professor at Harvard at a time where there's not a lot of, you know, Jewish people uh, at that kind of high level of academia. And um, he kind of picks apart, which was kind of the major doctrine of, of nuclear strategy at the time that Eisenhower was putting forward. He picks apart what's called massive retaliation, and he argues for something called limited nuclear war, which is that you can kind of win a little nuclear war uh, using smaller nuclear weapons. These weren't called tactical nuclear weapons at the time, but that was kind of, you know, where he made his name was nuclear strategy, uh, you know, being an early pioneer in this field. This is a moment where Henry Kissinger ends up defining some of the strategies 
looked at about 10 years later, he's implementing within the White House. When does he finally become Secretary of State and then give us some idea of how he focuses his energy? Within the Watergate scandal, uh, obviously a lot of the Nixon uh, administration is implicated. And, and Bill Rogers, the Secretary of State, was a really good friend of Nixon's, ends up resigning within the tumult of Watergate. I know all of you will want to hear from the new Secretary of State speaking for the first time in that capacity. There is no country in the world where it is conceivable that a man of my origins could be standing here next to the President of the United States. And what Kissinger becomes, which is, I think, unique in U.S. history, is he serves as both Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, kind of the closest advisor to Nixon. And, and I believe that had never been done before, that exactly. one person had held both of those titles. Exactly. So it, it, and I don't, I don't think anyone's done it since. Um, just kind of shows the tremendous amount of energy that this gentleman had. And what he does with that, you know, is it's a really complicated, huge ledger sheet. I mean, I think when you talk to strategists and defense experts, they will emphasize the opening up with China. You have to imagine China, uh, in the sixties and early seventies is even more closed than North Korea is today. I mean, this is a country that the U.S. really did not have any connection with, any diplomatic, uh, relations as far as I understand and economically next to nothing. And, you know, Henry Kissinger together with Nixon is the architect of this new policy, this opening up to China. I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Zhou Enlai. And just, I, I should say, you know, the strategy here was Cold War, pretty dangerous time for the U.S. The idea is you could pull away Russia from China, these two communist powers, and if the U.S. could, you know, develop a friendly relationship with China, it would, in effect, weaken Russia's power in the world. Literally a really similar conversation to what we're having today. At some point in here, I think he wins a Nobel Peace Prize. I think Gallup ranks him America's most admired man. What is going on with Henry Kissinger? Well, I, he does this kind of amazing thing that you can't really do in 2023, which is, you know, shuttle diplomacy. He spends a lot of time on planes and he's able to kind of show up in countries and, and lay the groundwork for this opening with China, able to do all this kind of back channeling in the Middle East. There's this surprise Arab war on Israel in 1973. Secretary Kissinger had planned to spend a quiet private weekend in New York, but the Middle East crisis forced him to rush back to Washington. He spoke briefly with newsmen as he left. We've told you everything that we can say. I'm in close touch with the president. You know, complex legacy of a, a Middle East peace process is something Henry is also responsible for. But in that moment, he's putting pressure on the different parties. He's shuttling between Israel and, and, and other Arab capitals. He's getting to know Anwar Sadat. He's dealing with some of the most towering kind of figures in, in the 20th century history. And he's kind of a player. And, and he, because he has the confidence of, of Richard Nixon as a diplomat, he's able to kind of do things that some secretaries of state aren't, which is kind of 
you know, truly be America's lawyer, America's representative on the world stage. So the opening up of China might be something that he's he's famous for. Tell me about some of the things he's infamous for. Sean, it's a very long list. I think most closely associated with the Vietnam War, even, you know, the peace movement at the time in the late 60s, early 70s, would be calling him out by name in protests in the United States. And, you know, it's it's pretty tremendous and, and tragic, the scale of the Vietnam War. It's, it's actually the Southeast Asia Wars. Uh, and Henry Kissinger, historians say, is responsible for expanding and prolonging those wars into Cambodia, into Laos, uh, with indiscriminate bombing, as historians and journalists have documented. And some of those bombs, for example, in Cambodia, are still going off. So there's this kind of terrifying thing where his his living legacy is this ongoing death. The war may have ended here in Laos 40-plus years ago, but the casualties of war continue on places like this soccer field, where some kids just two weeks ago found a little bomblet. They thought it was a ball and took it home to play with. About 270 million were originally dropped of the cluster munitions, and an estimate of 80 million still remained on the land. One part of Henry Kissinger's foreign policy legacy is sort of the overt participation in some of these wars. Another version of this is kind of giving a wink or a kind of tacit approval to something horrible. And, and I think that's what happens with the Khmer Rouge, where, you know, he basically told them, according to records, these are murderous thugs, but I'm not going to stand in their way. Uh, something that happened in other countries when um, generals took over Pakistan and East Timor. Uh, and then also with, you know, Pinochet in Chile and in Argentina. It's a record of not just doing things that historians call atrocities or war crimes, but kind of not using U.S. power to to stop war crimes, as it were. What is the overarching strategy, be it in, in Chile with Pinochet or in carpet bombing Cambodia or in, in Pakistan and Bangladesh? What is he trying to do? So I, th I think, in fairness to Henry Kissinger, what he would say and his supporters would say is, this is realism. This is standing up for American interests in the world. And, and that means making some really messy, dirty decisions because... What comes first are American interests. Now, I, I think that, you know, doesn't hold up. Based on my reporting, I think usually a human rights-driven foreign policy can be a really good thing for American interests. But what we see in all these different contexts is Henry Kissinger kind of not thinking about people in these countries, not thinking about long-term effects, but thinking about what is good for America in the middle of this Cold War moment. And so you do have some historians that say he navigated this stuff pretty well. This was a, a superpower crisis, a world on the verge of nuclear war. And, and other journalists and historians who say millions of dead, two million dead in Cambodia, uh, a long list of countries throughout Latin America, Southeast Asia, South Asia, that were subject to bombardment and coups and political violence that, you know, at the very least... Henry Henry Kissinger didn't do anything about, and at the most, he was a, a participant. And this is why, you know, Christopher Hitchens, uh, you know, the kind of firebrand author, wrote this famous book that was accusing Henry Kissinger of war crimes. And this has become 
almost a meme or a longstanding criticism that, you know, in all these different contexts, all these different countries, from Pinochet and Chile all the way to Southeast Asia, Henry Kissinger had a role in alleged war crimes. You know, something he was never really held accountable for. And and I'm not saying by, you know, the criminal court. I'm saying in, in kind of seminars and the kind of polite foreign policy circles in which I circulate, he's never really had to answer for this really dirty history that is front of mind to many people in the global south. Support for the show today comes from Shopify. You know the concept of an elevator pitch where you like, you know, sell your idea for your product or your business in the time it would take to ride an elevator from the ground floor to the eighth floor or whatever. But what if you're so good at the elevator pitch that people want to buy your product on that same elevator ride? Are you ready for that? Shopify can help. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth as you go up that elevator. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere, even in an elevator at their service from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash explained. Go to shopify.com slash explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Ramp. This ad goes out to all the finance professionals looking for love. I'm just kidding. Looking for a better way to simplify business finance across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting. And to all the accountants tired of the same old finance software, Ramp may be the answer you've been looking for. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. So what does that mean? Well, according to Ramp, they give finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. Issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions. Automate expense reporting so you don't waste time. Ramp says its accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so that you don't have to. That could put an end to chasing down receipts and to your employees spending hours submitting expense reports. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions do apply. Support for the show already comes from Delete Me. Your personal information is online. So is mine. I don't think I'm breaking any news by saying that, but you might be surprised to know just how much of your information is available not only for people to see, but to sell as well. And that's where Delete Me comes in. Delete Me wants to help you keep things such as your name, number, home address, and other private information out of the hands of data brokers. I've never personally kept my information out of the hands of data brokers, but perhaps 
Vox's business team's Claire White has. Removing the data that Delete Me found was super easy because I didn't have to do anything. They already removed my information across sites that they deemed as unsafe. I truly did not have to lift a finger. You can take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. You can get 20% off your Delete Me plan today when you go to joindeleteme.com slash today and use the promo code today at checkout. Again, you can get 20% off by going to joindeleteme.com slash today and enter the code TODAY at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash today. The code is TODAY. Who the hell are you? Gillinger. Dr. Henry Gillinger. And this is... Today Explained is back with Jonathan Geyer, who is a senior Kissinger correspondent at Vox. Jonathan... Henry Kissinger does not go away after the White House. Instead, he becomes, I think, maybe one of the most successful influencers of all time. I think Henry Kissinger in the last 50 years of his career, you know, from the 80s onward, is as important as when he was in the White House and at the State Department. So the first thing he does is he starts Kissinger Associates. And this is his consulting firm. And... This is one of the first times that, you know, kind of senior statesperson, diplomat, essentially sells out and decides that he is going to serve as a fixer, essentially, to companies like Coca-Cola, defense contractors, big banks, financial institutions. He's going to use all those contacts and expertise and that kind of revolving door power that he had gained in the 60s and 70s to help corporations make money in places like China, where, you know, he's very much associated with the opening up. He was going to profit from it. And it's it's sort of, I, I dare to say, funny that he was most known for his really large fees. $250,000, I think, was the retainer, according to, like, a New York Times report from the 80s. A huge amount of money at the time. And so what, what Henry Kissinger does is he pioneers what's called strategic consulting, that he is going to be a kind of on-call think tank diplomat for the world's biggest corporate titans, solve their problems, or at least take their phone calls when when they want to talk to Henry Kissinger, and, and just get paid tremendously handsomely for that. And he does this into his second century of life. Right. And he's been having a lot of 100th birthday parties this year. Several times that I've heard him get sung happy birthday. Because you were invited to these birthday parties? Uh, Well, let's say I was more of a party crasher, but um, I I saw one line in Secretary of State Tony Blinken's schedule that he was going to Henry Kissinger's birthday party in New York, not open to the press. But, you know, you can't really close press outside the New York Public Library where this was being held. So I thought, hey, it's a good shtick. I'll show up. I'll see who's on the red carpet for Henry Kissinger. Mr. Secretary, Jonathan Geyer with Vox. What is there to celebrate about Henry Kissinger? And it wasn't just Tony Blinken. It was CIA Director Bill Burns, Samantha Power, Robert Kraft, who owns the Patriots, Mike Bloomberg, Jim Baker, who's another former Secretary of State, who's, you know, into his 90s, and just a ton of A-listers. I was sort of surrounded by Bentleys and limos and really beefy security guards and just watching the kind of foreign policy celebrities 
in action. Nerd prom. But it wasn't just that, Sean. It kept going. Um, there have been birthday celebrations for him basically up until the day he died. It's it's sort of a remarkable feat. The amount of birthday I mean, the Pentagon gave him a birthday cake. The New York Economic Club sang him happy birthday. And then at, I was at the Al Smith dinner, uh, this very famous Catholic fundraiser, Elite Affair in New York, and they also sang him happy birthday last month. Happy birthday, Dr. Kissinger. Happy birthday to you. So when I saw Henry Kissinger at this Al Smith dinner, he was coming from a meeting with Xi Jinping in China. Xi had hosted a four-hour banquet for him earlier in the year. I mean, he's just regularly meeting with world leaders, uh, Netanyahu and Zelensky. He was at this banquet for Modi, the Indian prime minister, over the summer at the State Department. It's just sort of everywhere I looked, my Google alert was blowing up. And, you know, as one banker said, this this guy, Henry Kissinger at 100, has, had a more robust social calendar than a whole lot of us. I mean, basically took up a lot of my past six months just attending lectures, conferences, and, and birthday parties. And what did you learn, Jonathan, at, at these lectures, conferences, birthday parties, functions that you were not invited to about why the world still wants to celebrate and revere Henry Kissinger? So first of all, I, I think it's important to say that he still wielded power until the day he died. It wasn't like just history incarnate. It wasn't just a throwback. His protégés were in power, his networks. He still served on an influential Pentagon advisory board. He was very much, you know, well through this year, connected and influencing policies on, on Russia and China to a great degree. But I think the more interesting thing I learned is, and I called up Larry Summers and interviewed other people who were at these birthday parties, no one wants to talk about the alleged war crimes. No one wants to talk about the dark underbelly. No one wants to talk about what Henry Kissinger represented in terms of American empire and sort of what violence and war can do to a country. They just want to focus on the kind of diplomacy as a fun hobby, as, as far as I could tell. How come? I mean, you've got allegations of war criminal, you've got receipts, you know, but it sounds like this guy is basically like the Paris Hilton of foreign policy. You would think Tony Blinken and Larry Summers and Samantha Power would want to stay as far away as possible from Kissinger's messy legacy. I think President Obama has spoken to that, how much time he spent trying to clean up after Henry Kissinger. Well, and I think Bernie Sanders probably said it best, uh, you know, in one of the debates with Hillary Clinton, where he said, I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. I think that was an iconic moment because even after he left office in this past 50 years, he somehow is still beloved, in part because, you know, some of the smart strategic policies, which we could debate over China, Russia, arms control, and in part just because I think Americans love power. People like to be close to it. And that's what he represented, I think, to New York, why 850 people would show up to a gala that cost $5,000 a head. Henry's very famous for saying, you know, power is, is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And I, and I think we saw this playing out with the kind of throngs of 
lawyers and investors and bankers and former policymakers and current opinion shapers lining up to see him. He keynoted three events in October, three weeks in a row. So I kind of had my Thursdays with Henry, uh, seeing him speak at length. And, you know, he was lucid. He was on. And it was sort of fascinating to see this preview of the gerontocracy. You know, obviously, America's leaders and politicians are getting older into their 80s and 90s. And I think this was a bit of a preview, watching Henry at 100 hold court at a think tank as recently as last month. What did he have to say at all your Thursdays with Henry? Did he did he still have super pressing, compelling, cogent things to say about America's place in the world? I mean, it, in my humble estimation, it was a little basic. I mean, he was said the, the biggest threats to the world are Russia, China, artificial intelligence. And it, it was a very pessimistic tone about these dangers. We cannot afford a divided nation in a world in which nuclear power is matched by the growth of artificial intelligence. What I didn't hear from Henry Kissinger in in all these keynotes that I attended and speeches was I didn't hear the answer. I mean, it's sort of this thing where you have Israel reportedly indiscriminately bombing Gaza, and it seems really familiar if you're looking into Henry Kissinger's history of what Laos and Cambodia experienced. And it's almost like I wanted Henry to have an answer of, here's how we crack the nut that is Israel-Palestine in the Middle East. Here's how we solve these ongoing geopolitical superpower wars that, you know, he'd had a hand in for almost his entire career. And he didn't have that. You know, it seems like from a lot of your reporting that a lot of power players in U.S. and even international politics wanted to be in the room with Henry Kissinger because Henry Kissinger was powerful. He had access. He had experience. We live in a world that he helped shape. Now that he's gone, do you think people will remember him differently? I doubt it. I mean, I did try to ask him, by the way, about Pinochet in, in Laos and Cambodia. Uh, you know, he didn't comment. He didn't respond. His his handlers kind of shooed me away when I, when I tried to ask about that last month. But I think the bigger picture thing is Henry Kissinger was literally advising the Biden administration up until recently. He was on this advisory board to the Pentagon. His protégés like Mike Bloomberg and Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, are very important close connectors to Biden world. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, you know, was on a study group with Henry, you know, between the Trump and Biden administrations. I think his influence will endure and what he represents will endure, which is you can do things that are well-documented, that are well-understood, that are vastly more destructive than any policy before, and you're probably not going to be held to account. If I had to do it over again, I would do again substantially the same way, which may make me unreconstructed. Maybe one reason why I'm at peace with myself. <laughs> 